Well, good morning. Happy Lord's Day, everyone. And if you have been uh, attending our church or you are a regular here, you know that we have been, we started a series called Sermon on the Mount. We are going through Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Obviously, your most of your Bible will say Sermon on the Mount on the whole section. Tapos may mga subheadings yung, uh, yung uh, portions of the, the, the two chapters. Uh, we call this Sermon on the Mount because literally, Jesus is giving a sermon. So basically, what I'm doing now is a sermon within a sermon. <laughs> so it, sometimes it's, it's, it's best to just stay away and you know, let the Lord speak uh, to us. But like any good sermon, uh, a sermon must have at least, at least uh, three things to you, to, for you to really call it a sermon. Uh, what's the first one? Obviously, you need, you need to have a text. Not just a story to tell, not just illustrations, but you need to have a text to expound. All right? Number two, you need to have a faithful interpretation of that text. You don't just preach a text and then fly into something else. Number three, it's not a complete homily or preaching if it doesn't compel us for a practical application. It's not just a download of information. It will convict us. It will comfort us. It will challenge us. And that's exactly what we see in the second half of Matthew chapter 5. This is where literally it's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is preaching. You remember uh, last Sunday, there were two phrases that uh, Jesus mentioned. First one is he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He said that in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. And he also said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And what we have for this Sunday and next Sunday is an elaboration of those two statements. So we have before us an explanation with those two phrases. And so what we will see today is uh, Jesus highlighting three commandments that the Jews are very familiar with. He preaches on this. He explains its true meaning of the law. He emphasizes its deep implication. And in the process, he exposes his rightful authority to make such claim. That's why our, our sermon uh, title today is Jesus the, two, the true teacher of the law. And this is just part one, and we will uh, continue this next Sunday. So again, we see here Jesus being the true teacher of the law. And that implies three things, and this is basically our, our uh, sermon points today. Number one, Jesus teaching the law helps us see and confirm his authority. It confirms his authority. Number two, Jesus' teaching of the law corrects our understanding of it, our understanding of the Torah or the law. 
And number three, Jesus teaching us the law compels us to live holy lives. Right? So three things. And uh, for, uh, for parents, you can mention these key words to your children. Uh, it confirms the authority of Jesus. It corrects our understanding of it. It compels or challenge, maybe that's a better word for children, to live us holy lives, to help us live holy lives. Um, and if you want to summarize, uh, kids, if you want to summarize uh, the, the sermon to remind your, your parents, you can just say, the true teacher teaches the truth, right? The true teacher teaches the truth. And my hope is that as we look into this text, the second half of uh, chapter 5, you know, our response would be, you know, that we run to Jesus just like, you know, just like what Peter uh, said, Lord, where else could we go? You have the words of, it, of life. And so let's look into these three things in our text today. Number one, Jesus confirms his authority in teaching the law. How does he confirm that? Well, with the phrase that was repeated over and over in 21 until 48, the phrase, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. Every statement here in our text and in next Sunday is framed on that. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. You heard, you, you heard it maybe in the synagogue or in the temple. Maybe you've heard these things uh, through your fathers, to those who teach you. But at each statement, Jesus is saying, I say to you, but I say to you. You know, we might think, wow, Jesus is uh, not challenging the Torah. You know, keep in mind, Jesus was not questioning the Torah here. Rather, he was directly challenging yung faulty teachings and misunderstanding of the teachers of the law. Even at that time, there were faulty teachings already. There were rabbinic traditions that teaches and elaborates, which actually makes the, the law murkier, and sometimes it loses its essence. That's, that's what uh, he, he challenges here. And the way he challenges it, he does not say, you have heard it was said, but this is my opinion on it. You have heard it was said, maybe there's a better way. He's not saying that. Pay careful attention with what Jesus is saying. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. You have heard it was say, said, you've, you, you were taught like this, but I say to you. If you are a first century Jew and you're listening at that time, even if you are a Pharisee or a scribe, you will roll your eyes with this statement. Because Jesus is exposing his authority. He is saying it with such command and confidence to say, I say to you. You know, when the words, uh, when Jesus say, says, but I say to you, 
it has the same weight as the phrase in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. And so for those who were there and does not recognize the authority of Jesus, they will roll their eyes. They will say, how dare this man? For, for those who understand his authority, they will tremble in fear. This is the one who says, thus says the Lord. He's not just giving his opinion. He's not just updating the law. He's not just a rabbi. He's the rabbi of rabbis. He's the teacher of teachers. He's the king of kings. And so when we, when we see that phrase, our eyes and our ears should be drawn closer and listen to what he is saying. Because these are the words of the king. Friends, when a king gives a decree, you don't say, you know, I respect your opinion. And that's a very big deal, you know, these days, right? You know, we need to respect each other's opinion. Or you say something that, uh, you know, that, that the earth is flat, I respect your opinion. Oh, you say these things, but that, you know, uh, eh, baka matrigger kayo, hindi na <laughs> ng example. But, but it's, 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 big, it's a big deal now that, you know, our, our tendency for tolerance is just to respect each other's opinion. But when the king says something, he's not demanding for us to respect his opinion. The assumption is you follow it. When the king says something, it's true. There's no there's no arguing about it. And so when this king says, Blessed are you, especially yung first yung first sermon natin, that's true. Look at how you know, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, yung last verse in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 28, look at this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority. It was noticeable with his words. It was notable, noticeable with his body language, not like with the scribes. And look at how, you know, the whole book of Matthew ends with Jesus giving this, what we call now a great, the great commission. That's the, the final decree of the king. And remember how that great commission started. Verse 18, Jesus, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. That's why when he says, go and make disciples into all nations, this is a decree of the king who says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, it has the same weight. And so in these words, in this teaching, he confirms his authority. And it's best, it would be wise for us 
to listen to this true teacher of the law. So point number one, Jesus confirms his authority to teach the law. And he not only confirms his authority, he corrects our understanding of the law. This is our point number two. Jesus corrects our understanding of the law by expounding, by preaching on at least three of the Ten Commandments. At least dito sa text natin, ha? three of the Ten Commandments. Yung commandment number six, commandment number seven, very directly uh, quoted and implied, although not directly quoted, yung commandment number three, do not take the Lord's uh, name in vain. Right? Pastor, bakit, bakit hindi yung buong ten ang preach ni Jesus? Bakit tatlo lang? Why is he elevating these three? Well, this is not an exhaustive teaching. He is not uh, enumerating all the commandments and explaining their meaning. This is not exhaustive. This is illustrative. He is using these commandments, highlighting these three, uh, as examples to prove a point. And what's the point? That the law demands righteousness. And doon pa lang sa tatlo, we can see that we fail to fulfill, fulfill these commands. Would you still want to hear the rest of the commandments? If we find ourselves guilty already with the three, how much more in all of, the, all of them? So let's look at how Jesus corrects our understanding, not just our understanding, but those who were listening to him at that time. He expounds commandment number six. What is commandment number six? Thou shall not murder. Thou shall not murder. Well, pastor, does this refer to first degree murder? How about a second degree murder? How about a third degree murder? Well, I'm not a lawyer. I, I, I don't. I rarely watch Criminal Minds and, 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 and uh, similar uh, series. I don't know the difference, but because the word murder is there, I would say it qualifies as murder. Ha, pastor, how about homicide? Does that count? Maybe. Because <laughs> it's murder, eh. homicide. Na eh. Pastor, paano kung involuntary manslaughter? Does, still, does that still count? You know what I'm doing here? I'm trying to find a loophole. And according to the teachings of the scribe at that time, as long as you did not murder anyone, as long as someone did not die in your hands, because of you, you are keeping the sixth commandment. As long as you did not murder anyone, as far as the sixth commandment is concerned, you're good. But Jesus says, I say to you, whoever is angry with his neighbor, his brother or sister, 
will be subject to the same judgment. Whoever insults his brother and whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. And what is Jesus doing here? Is he equating, you know, anger and insult with murder? Obviously, that's, those are two different things. You know, the level of violence involved there are totally different. Well, it's true that there are degrees of sin, but sin is at the heart of each and every man. What he's, what he's doing here, number one, he's emphasizing the sanctity of every human life. Not only that, he's also restoring the essence of human dignity. Essence of human dignity. That intrinsic value of every human being is not based on their sex, on their race, on their educational attainment, or you know, family background. Their intrinsic value comes from the fact that we are all created in the image of God. And so when we insult one another, when we say, actually this original text, raka, when we say you fool, when we, when we you know, uh, express anger with one another, we're devaluing their dignity. And Jesus says, you're committing murder in your heart already. Friends, how many people have we killed already in our minds? <laughs> how many people have we considered dead to us? We've not laid a hand on them, right? But we have remove human dignity from them just because of that. So it's not just Jesus withholding violence and harm kasi when we just say, Pastor, wala, oh, una, wala naman akong pinatay. Pangalawa, you know, I'm, hinahayaan ko na lang sila. And, and that, does, does that mean you know, I'm already fulfilling this uh, aspect of the commandment. Jesus goes further. He's not just passively asking us something. He's asking us to do something on the positive naman. Hindi lang negative, but also positive. Don't murder instead. Don't murder in your heart. Instead, if there's something going on there, pursue reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation. Especially if you are on your way to the temple, if you're going to the church. You see, Jesus seems to value not just your heart and you and yourself presenting yourself to the Lord, but it's important that you be reconciled with your brother. That seems to be a tough and difficult command, don't you think? 
and I'll drive this further later on, but let's, let's move on. So that's the sixth commandment. He expounds on the seventh commandment next. And what's the seventh commandment? Thou shall not commit adultery. And the scribes were teaching, you know, as long as you're not committing adultery, meaning you have not had sexual relationships with someone that is not, not your wife or husband, you're fine. You're good. Pastor, single ako, so wala kong husband or wife. So I'm good. Or, well, I've not had sexual relationship with someone other than my wife or my husband. I, I think I'm good. But I tell you, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, this cuts really directly into our 21st century world where we are neck deep in sexual visual stimulation. Our world is so sexualized and it's so accessible to anyone. And by cultural standards, this is the norm. No one will, no one will look at you funny or weird if you are part of, you know, sexual and visual stimulation. It's part of the world. Something that is widely accepted. But as for Jesus, he says, this is not okay. This is not okay. You know, by this premise alone, by this premise alone and looking at our world today, that means adultery is happening every single day in each and everyone's home in this hyper-connected, hyper-visually sexualized world. No wonder Jesus also mentions if that is happening inside our hearts, Jesus also mentions the issue of divorce. So whoever divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. You know, the Jews were taught that if you want to get rid of your wife, all you must do, at least para maging formal, is to write a certificate of divorce, just a written notice of divorce. And then you're good. You know, remember that story in John chapter 4 where, where Jesus uh, met a woman at the well? Remember the background of that woman? That she have had uh, five husbands? Right? So, you know, growing up, my, our, our, my assumption, I would think, that because the woman has had five husbands, maybe this woman was promiscuous. Maybe she was sleeping around. But you know what? It's also possible that one or two or three of the husbands divorced her and just wrote off a, a, a certificate of divorce. And remember what Jesus mentioned? 
Oh, you have had five husbands and the one that you're with now is not your husband. It's possible because the fifth husband has not given a certificate of divorce yet. You see, if this uh, perpetuates this teaching, and that's why Jesus needs this to be corrected, this principle as being taught by the experts of the law is subject for abuse. It's detrimental to women. And it undermines the sanctity of marriage. And so Jesus elevates again and restores again, you know, commit to the vows that you have made. So the point is this, for single people, pursue sexual purity in mind and in body. But also for single and married people, Cultivate faithfulness in your marriage and pursue sexual purity. Be faithful in mind and body. Be faithful to the vows that you have given. You know, this, this week, um, I co-officiated a, a really beautiful wedding and and more, more and more, I get to appreciate uh, the vows that uh, husbands and uh, the bride and groom uh, gives. We have this cultural tradition of uh, couples giving their personalized vows. And that's a really good, you know, content for videos. But you know what? Honestly, honestly, when I listen to personalized vows, it's more of a declaration of their romantic feelings towards the person and not really a vow. They're not making a vow, they're just professing their love. And those are two different things. Of course, that's, that's all well and good. But what we must remember in the presence of God and the witnesses on a wedding day is the vow that we have made. And speaking of vows, it seems like, you know, maybe Jesus is contradicting this. In verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all. What? Don't make a vow? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Either by heaven or because it's God's throne or by earth. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but, but let your yes be yes and your no mean no. You know, here's what's happening here. Let me explain. Uh, you know, Jews were instructed to, to take an oath, especially if they're, you know, making a sacrifice at the temple or uh, engaging in a contract. Uh, those oaths have varying degrees. So I 
I oath to the God of the heaven. Yeah. Or I, I, I swear on the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. So varying degrees because by doing so, it makes their promise more legit. By saying, you know, Pexman, <laughs> Mamatayman, it makes the promise legit. And it also adds some motivation to fulfill the promise. And what happens often? We, we fail to fulfill the promises that we make, right? And so what happens to that oath that you have made? Basically, what's happening is you're dragging the name of the Lord into your commitment and then you fail it. It's taking the name of the Lord in vain. You know, Jesus' point is simple here. If you are a person of integrity, there's no need for you to take an oath. There's a space for that. You know, Jesus is not completely, you know, abolishing you oaths and vows. You know, wedding vows are definite yes. But there's, there's no need to make that promises if you're a person of integrity. And if I may quote Yoda, <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. Right? You know, Christians are called to be people of integrity. And that's why, you know, sadly, uh, in, in Christian circles, there's a lot of burnout because many Christians are afraid to, to say no. And so they say yes and yes and yes until they just burn out. Why? Because we, uh, at the heart of it, of committing and committing, committing to, to ministry is our fear that people will look at us differently if we say no. If we, if we say no, we're not really, you know, we're not really good Christians. If so if you say yes to it, commit to it. If you are not sure to commit to it, say no. Don't make a promise. You know, the whole point of Jesus correcting the, our, our understanding of the law is really... Uh, you know, John Calvin in his institutes was spot on with this when he said Christ himself has restored the right understanding of the law. So when we say that this is the meaning of the law, we are not thrusting forward a new interpretation of our own, but we are following Christ, its best interpreter. We don't form our own opinion or preferences for the decrees of God. We follow the standards that our king has set. And what is the standard that our king has set? He calls us to live holy lives. And this is our third and final point. He calls us by this uh, teaching to live holy lives. 
And within this has implications of his call for righteousness. Number one, that sin starts at the heart. That murder doesn't happen outside of an angry heart. It starts, murder starts at the heart. That adultery and divorce does not happen outside of a lustful heart. It happens inside the heart. It starts there. That oaths and vows that were broken and the tendency to pursue and to make promises that we are bound to, to break is coming from a heart that's fearful of what people will think of us. Sin starts at the heart. And number two, what Jesus is saying here as he compels us to live holy lives is that we cannot take sin lightly. We cannot take sin lightly. That's why, you know, he, he expounds on what it means when, you know, if, if one part of the body causes uh, us to sin, just cut it off and throw it away. Allah, Pastor, see, Jesus is uh, commending self-mutilation. I think there's, a, there's an, a religious order that does that. Is Jesus talking about self-mutilation here? You know, if sin starts at the heart... If you throw off your right eye, sooner or later, you will throw off your left eye. So what Jesus is, is doing here, this is called a hyperbole. He's illustrating the, the weight, the demand of what it means to live holy lives. That at all costs, if there's a way for you to to remove, for, for instance, if your cell phone causes you to, to sin, maybe stay away from it. That's the demand of this ethic. And by clarifying the high demands of the law, it tells us that there are no loopholes in the righteousness of God. There are no loopholes. Friends, we cannot lawyer our way out of the judgment of God. We are fooling ourselves when we think we can make an out-of-the-court settlement, thinking that we can get away with, you know, small sins as long as we obey the major commandments and we're compensating for additional good works. That's what we have been doing. We are trying to lawyer ourselves before God. You know, there's this um, movie, um, I don't know if you're familiar, in, in 1992, uh, which is now a classic called A Few Good Men. That's where, you know, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, uh, there, that's where you hear the line, you can't handle the truth. Tom Cruise at that, in, in that movie is a successful lawyer, but he hasn't set foot in a courtroom because he has been doing out-of-the-court settlement. He's a really wise guy. 
a perfect record because he's doing a lot of settlement on the side. We cannot do that before God. The reason why Jesus elevates the demands of the law and actually restores the demands of the law is because we cannot escape it. We either fulfill it or we are guilty of its demands. And because we are utterly incapable of justifying ourselves, we need someone else to represent us. Someone, someone who knows completely the essence of the law. Someone who is the true teacher of the law. And who better can represent us than, than the one who says, you have heard, but I say to you. Someone who has the authority and the ability to stand in between the righteous God and sinners like us. Jesus knows not only the true essence of the law, but Jesus knows that we would be crushed by the weight of it. So what does he do? He carries the full weight of the law for us. He fulfills the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. That's what he said last Sunday, right? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You know, J.C. Ryle summarizes this beautifully. He says, without a mighty mediator, everyone would be condemned in judgment. Praise be to God, we have this mighty mediator. You know, because the sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that as we look into the teaching of our Savior, we are reminded that the law is not an outdated, irrelevant document. It's not merely a list of do's and don'ts, but through the preaching of our Savior, we see its essence. We tremble at the weight of its demands for us, and so we come and we run to our mediator. We ask God that, we, that you will help us find comfort in our advocate. That in him, we find righteousness. Not because we have fulfilled these commandments, but because he did on our behalf. May we put our hope in him always. Christ's name we pray. Amen.